If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3 this morning. We are picking up where we left off in Luke's gospel, this great uh, historical and theological account of the Lord Jesus. Luke, the beloved physician, writing to his friend uh, Theophilus and giving him an ordered and accurate account of all the things that happen. And so we are picking up in Luke chapter 3 this morning and looking at verses 1 through 14. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find this on page 858. Um, Otherwise, I don't know what page it's on in your Bible, but I hope you're reading along with me. And uh, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Let me pray for us before we look at this. Luke chapter 3, 1 through 14. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would strengthen both the one who preaches and those who hear your word this morning. We pray that you would accomplish your purposes as you have promised to do. We ask, Lord, that you would change us by the reading and preaching of your word and that, Lord Jesus, above all things, you would make us to hear your voice as of the good shepherd, that we would come forth and live and follow you, that we might be rooted and grounded in you and established in the faith, that we might know more of the riches that we have in you. We pray that you would draw near, that you would be formed in us by faith, and that you would accomplish your purposes, that you would deepen our repentance and increase our faith. We pray these things in your name. Amen. And we're looking this morning at Luke 3, 1 through 14. Now Luke says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism for the proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, October 31st, 1517, a young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther went uh, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg 
and he nailed what became famously known as the 95 Theses written in Latin to the door of the castle church. He was not known at that time. He was not a well-known figure. He has subsequently become one of the most well-known figures in the history of humanity. In fact, the 95 Theses have accurately been said to be more significant and have had a greater impact than the Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence. Now, some of you, many of you perhaps have never read the 95 Theses. Uh, What you will perhaps know is that the first of those is the most important. And in that first of those 95 Theses against the tyrannical oppression of the Church of Rome over the consciences of men and women, For thousands of years, Martin Luther said that when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, said repent, he meant that the entirety of the Christian life should be one of repentance. Now, Luther wrote that because the Roman Catholic Church had mistranslated the word for which we get the word repentance in the Greek, and they had translated it do penance. And they had constructed an elaborate system by which they said you could be accepted by God and forgiven by God and have satisfaction for your sin if you would just go through these rituals of penance and if you would afflict your soul. This is going to sound ridiculous. They even said if you you afflicted your soul to such an extent that you slept on a hard bed because you were so grieved over your sin... That kind of stuff would help make satisfaction with God, and God would be pleased with you. And then the the crown of the penitential system was if you or your loved ones died and went to a a made-up place called purgatory, where you would have to work off all of the sin that Jesus didn't pay for. This is is real. You can look it up. Um, That you or your loved ones could pay your way out of purgatory if you bought indulgences And when the copper hit uh, the tin, the soul from purgatory sprung, and Johann Tetzel, the great uh, enemy of Protestantism and the great adversary of Martin Luther, wrote his doctoral dissertation on indulgences and the defense of indulgences. And Luther comes in one sweeping blow, and he says, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be one not of penitence, not of doing, but of repentance. Now, that begs the question, what is repentance? And as we come to this passage this morning, we have a very focused uh, teaching that the Holy Spirit gives us on John the Baptist and a ministry of repentance. John, remember, is Jesus' cousin. He is the forerunner. He's the one appointed by God to go before the Lord. And as it was said at his infancy, he would be the one that would prepare the way for the Lord. He would go and he would make a straight path. He was the ambassador that would go out and, as it were, go through the villages and through the towns. And as the roads were overgrown, he would go and he would clear out the roads and he would call the people out and he would tell them that the king was coming. He was the ambassador, the forerunner, and he was appointed by God to say that the Lord had come. And Now we've jumped from the infancy narrative of Jesus all the way to the year AD 27. Isn't that marvelous? Luke has taken us, as it were, all the way to the really important stuff. We've gone from the infancy to the boyhood to now John the Baptist begins his ministry in the wilderness. And before we look at John's ministry and his baptism of repentance and 
what repentance is and what's the evidence of repentance and why none of us will be saved if we don't repent, um, it's important for us to see that there is a historical, there is a historical uh, significance here in the first several verses. Notice Luke tells us in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, this is not just a history lesson. This uh, account he is giving us, as it were, a, a list of the great villains of his time. These are the great villains. This is a list of the hall of uh, debauchery and oppression. Imagine, if you would, all of the evil leaders of the world, Stalin, Hitler, Mussolini, all of the great, notorious, wicked leaders. Uh, if you don't like Trump, throw Trump in there. I don't care. Let's just put them all in there. If you like Trump, take them out. I don't care. So let's put everybody in there. Okay, we're, we're, I mentioned Trump. Now everybody's listening. Okay, let's talk about Jesus. So, okay, Jesus is more important than Trump. He's on the throne. So we put all the wicked leaders of the world together, and you put them all over one nation. That's the list you have right here. These are the people that are going to put John the Baptist in prison, behead him, and crucify Jesus. So (laughs) that's why they're there. Luke has given us a very careful, very articulate, historically accurate, researched uh, place in history when his ministry began and what he's doing. And this is absolutely amazing. He's saying, listen, this is the time period. It's these years. These rulers are in place. Pontius Pilate, Herod, all of the uh, honest Caiaphas, all of those that Jesus is going to appear before in his trial. It's three years before he's crucified. And in that day, at that time, when all of these wicked political villains are dominating God's people and oppressing them, the word of God comes to John in the wilderness. Now, don't miss that. John's ministry, and that's the first thing we're going to see, is the ministry of repentance. John's ministry begins in an unlikely place. It, it's, it's so unlikely. Here are all the power brokers of the world. Here are the ones who are building the armies and dominating the world. Here are the ones going out and, and, and taxing the people and censoring the people and expanding their borders. And at that day and at that time... After so many hundreds of years of God functionally being silent, as it were, he now comes and the word of God comes to John and it comes out of the prying eyes of men in the wilderness. And and the very first thing that we're supposed to see in this is that no matter what's raging around us, no matter what's happening around us, when the infinite and almighty God, when the triune God decides to speak and act and move, nothing will stop him. When the almighty God decides to work, nothing will stop him. He will do what he will, when he will, wherever he will, in whomever he will. He will use whomever he will, and no one and nothing can stop him. That is absolutely amazing. This is not a history lesson. It's a theology lesson. When God decides to do something powerful, nothing can stop him. And so the word of the Lord has come to John and No sooner has God's word come to John that God's word comes from John. Isn't that interesting? Luke tells us that the word of God came to John, the end of verse 2, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, 
And he went into all the regions around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John is not your typical person. He is a crazy guy in the wilderness. Yes, he's eating locust and wild honey. He's clothed in camel hair. He he has fallen out of societal rapport. This is the guy you make fun of by nature. And he's the guy you listen to by grace. This is the guy you make fun of by nature, and it's the guy that God appointed that you listen to by grace, and his message is not smooth. He's not sweet and articulate. His message is not one of, um, one of rhetorical sophistication, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't tickle the ears. He comes out, he goes to the people, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God's at hand. He comes preaching a baptism of repentance, and he says, repent. That's his message. Now, some people have, over the years, said, you know, I like listening to Jesus because his message was sweeter than John's. Um, Jesus also said, if you don't repent, you're going to perish. I mean, you can't pick and choose what Jesus said. He said, repent or perish, many times. Now, there was a difference. Jesus came as the bridegroom. He came as the one who was appointed by God to, in a sense, intimate that the kingdom of God had a feasting aspect to it. He came um, in a celebratory manner. He came calling the worst of the worst to himself. He feasted with sinners. He turned uh, water into 180 gallons of the best wine. That's the Savior. He's the bridegroom. He comes with the, the party. He comes with the heavenly party by grace. John, on the other hand, comes calling people to mourn and weep over their sins And the two things go together. Now, it's very interesting because if you've ever had conversations with people in the church or outside of the church, one of the common conversations that you will often have with people is they will tell you what kind of preaching they like to listen to. I'll never forget um, the first time I was out talking to people, and I, I think I was preaching on Genesis 19 at the time on Sodom and Gomorrah, and somebody said, you're not one of those fire and brimstone preachers, are you? And I was like, well, this Sunday I am. I'm preaching on Genesis 19. (laughs) Um, Now, let me say this. Uh, Some people say, yeah, I don't want to hear this. I just want to hear this. It actually doesn't matter whether a minister faithfully proclaims the judgment of God and calls men and women to repent, or proclaims the grace and mercy of God to which that judgment serves, because the judgment of God always is meant to push us to the mercy of God. And mercy is greater than judgment and should have a greater place than judgment because the whole purpose of calling people to repent is so that they will know the mercy and grace of God and the forgiveness of their sins. Nevertheless, any minister of the gospel who is worth his salt has found that no matter what way he preaches, whether he preaches, um, as it were, with fiery warnings or with sweet and glorious promises, the same effect is going to happen because at the end of the day, the Spirit of God is the one who makes that happen. We don't want to be bulls in China shop. Um, We don't want to be uh, crassly insensitive But isn't it amazing that John is given a ministry of calling people to repent and everybody shows up? So so if you're one of those people who are like, I don't want to hear fire and brimstone preaching, well, you wouldn't have come to John. But everybody came because the Spirit of God was coming. And here's the really amazing thing. 
When the Spirit of God is moving, sinful men and women like you and me respond to the most difficult things in God's Word when they come from the mouth of bold ministers. When the Spirit of God is at work, this is the whole history of revivals in America. When Jonathan Edwards preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God, and, and he talks about all the men and women there being like spiders dangled over the pit of hell and that only their breath was keeping them. That, that's, that's it, just your breath. is just keeping you from judgment. And then he gives the gospel at the end. He says, come to Jesus. Come to the Savior. He's willing. He's ready. He's standing there. And the great awakening breaks out. It's because the Spirit of God is working. It's not because Jonathan Edwards had a sophisticated ploy for revival. He didn't set up a tent like all these charlatans do to get more money. Um, he was faithful and God was moving just like the Lord was moving here in the days of John the Baptist. This is the great awakening. Jesus has come. Jesus is about to start his ministry. What is necessary for that to happen is that God must prepare the hearts of his people. Now notice the language in verse four. um, Luke appeals to this passage out of Isaiah, the prophet. And he says, what John was appointed to do, he was the voice in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And and notice the language, to make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places shall become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. So what he's saying is, the impossible is about to happen. Valleys may be filled, mountains cannot be leveled. Crooked things cannot be made straight. Rough things may occasionally be made smooth. But here it's saying Israel had become like a crooked, rough, uh, rebellious church. The people of God. John's ministry was to the church. And the people had become wayward in every way. They had become completely corrupt. Reading through the prophets, you see just how corrupt they were. They were worshiping other gods. They, they were going to cultic prostitution ceremonies in the temple. They were offering their children. They were, they were, they were just like the pagan nations. Like, if there's any movement in culture that you're like, yikes. Like, that was Israel. They had become that wicked. And John comes, and in order to prepare the way for the Lord... He says, repent. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was appointed to minister a baptism of repentance. Now, um, John's baptism is different than Christian baptism. So they're two different baptisms. Christian baptism is Trinitarian. You saw that this morning. Uh, John's baptism was a unique baptism for Old Covenant Israel at this period in order to call them back to repentance. It symbolized the same thing. It symbolized that the people of God needed to be washed, needed to be cleansed. It showed that that their hearts were corrupt. It showed that they needed purification. It showed that they needed repentance. And everyone that came to John to be baptized and sincerely was grieved over their sins and wanted to know God's mercy and wanted to know forgiveness and wanted to be prepared for the coming of the Redeemer, everyone who sincerely came received the repentance that was symbolized in the baptism. Now, let me leave that there and transition to the second point, which is the nature of repentance, because all of this will not help you if I don't tell you what repentance is. I'm going to say this this morning. Um, 
You will not go to heaven if you don't repent. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking you will have eternal life if you never repent. You will not. Jesus says that. John says that. The apostles say that. No repentance, no salvation. So if you don't repent of your sins, you will perish forever. And I have told you that. I have said that. Unequivocally, you will perish forever. You will not be saved. That being said, repentance is not what saves you. Jesus saves us by his life and death and resurrection. And faith in Jesus is what unites us to him. And faith in Christ alone is what justifies us and makes us righteous before God. And faith is what gives us the forgiveness of our sins, not repentance. So repenting of your sins doesn't give you the forgiveness of your sins, but without repentance, you will not be forgiven. Now, what does that mean? What is repentance? Well, the... Best definition of repentance that I know of is in our own shorter catechism where it says repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his or her sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief for and hatred over their sin turn from it unto God with new endeavor and desire for obedience thereafter. So, so we've got to see what we are. We've got to, we've got to acknowledge our sin, our selfishness, our pride, our, our evil, our lust, our anger, our, our greed, every self-righteousness, our bitterness, our enmity toward God, all of it, the whole catalog. We've got to acknowledge what we are. We've got to have a true sense of what that is before God, not just that it hurts other people, Remember David in that great prayer of repentance, Psalm 51, when he had, he had killed one of his mighty men, Uriah, and he had taken his wife Bathsheba, and, and when he finally repents after a year, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. So it was as if his sin was only before the Lord, a true sense of our sin. We, we realize that we are sinners. We realize against whom we have sinned. We realize what our sins deserve. But then listen to this. We realize that God has provided a sacrifice in Jesus and that whoever turns to him has full and free forgiveness of sins and that it's only by grace and that we don't do anything to merit it and that whoever turns to God hoping in Christ and hoping in the sacrifice of Christ and looking to that sacrifice and saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, has the forgiveness that is provided by that sacrifice. And then we go on and we seek to grow in those things that please the Lord. So, true repentance, and Luther would say this if he were here, true repentance is acknowledging what we are, acknowledging what God has done in Christ, turning back to him, and seeking to do those things that are pleasing this sight. Now, this is a really wonderful uh, way of saying it. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? Because that's the great parable, right? Everybody loves the sweet sayings of Jesus. Well, the parable of the prodigal son is the sweetest thing Jesus ever gave. And here's the son, and he goes out to the far country, right? He squanders his father's wealth and prodigal living with prostitutes and drunkenness and everything else. And he goes out, and he lives a prodigal lifestyle, and then he runs out of money, and everybody uses him because the world hates you. Don't deceive yourself into thinking 
unbelievers love you, they don't. And, and he, he binds himself to the hired help, as hired help to some citizen of the far country. And he works with the pigs and he has nothing and he would gladly eat the pods, the garbage that's given to the pigs. And then Jesus says, when he came to his senses, that's the language of repentance, by the way. He came to his senses. He said to himself, here I am in the far country. There's plenty of food in my father's house. I'm going to arise. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And the father, seeing him the far way off, runs and he's waiting for him and he embraces him and he falls on him and he weeps and he kisses him. This is, this is God the father. And he clothes him with the best robe and he puts a ring on his hand and he kills the fatted calf and he throws the feast. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. But there is a crucial aspect of that parable that you might miss that is pertinent to this. Sinclair Ferguson says, when we come to our senses spiritually, when we come to our senses spiritually, our life is no longer characterized by the demand, give me. Remember, that's what the prodigal said. Father, give me what's mine. But now, by the request, make me. That's brilliant, by the way. When we come to our senses spiritually, our life is no longer categorized by the demand, give me, but by the request, make me. You see, what Ferguson is getting is that Repentance is a moral and a spiritual transformation of our heart by the Spirit of God. Nobody repents without the Spirit of God working within them. No one responds to the call to repent unless God is granting that grace. It is, it is one of his, his special graces for his children. When God allows us to come to our senses, oh, that it changes your life. That's conversion. You know, everybody else is dead in sins and trespasses, but when God raises us from death to life and we repent of our sins and we realize what we are and we realize who he is and we go back to him and we realize what he's done in Christ and we embrace Christ and we take him and we say, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to go back to my father and I don't want to demand that he gives me anything, but I want to request, Lord, make me, make me like your son, make me what you want me to be. And we own Christ for ourselves, and we take him as he's offered in the gospel, and we rest in him, and we continue to do that. And you know what? The rest of our lives, as Luther says, we live lives of repenting constantly. Um, No Christian is so far along in his or her sanctification that we don't need to repent of a thousand things every day. None of us. Thousands of things every day. Confessing, returning, forsaking, going back, embracing Christ, always turning back to the Lord Jesus, always turning back. That's the Christian life. Now, if you're listening to this and you think, well, that sounds exhausting, well, your sin is far more exhausting, believe me. You may not think so, but your sin, your guilt, your guilty conscience... All the consequences far more exhausting than going back to the Savior who constantly receives us and washes us and welcomes us and cleanses us and builds us up and increases our faith. That's, 
far less taxing than living in sin. And so we've seen this morning the ministry of repentance. We've considered the nature of repentance. Let's briefly consider the objects of repentance. Who comes out to John? Well, everybody comes. The religious and the irreligious come to John. John has such a unique and profound ministry, and God is moving in such a unique and a profound way that that everyone is flocking to him. Sinners are coming. Soldiers are coming. By the way, if I've learned one thing about pastoring military men is they, they are not soft people. That's a good thing. These soldiers are coming to John, and they're saying, what do we need to do? We're undone. Um, You've got tax collectors. Remember, they're at the bottom of the barrel. (laughs) They're down there with prostitutes in Jesus' day. So IRS workers, prostitutes, soldiers. In Jesus' day, maybe not today. Um, They're all down there. They're all the despised, right? The religious leaders hate them. Luke has that special focus on the despised. They're all coming out to John. But first notice who's coming out to John. You have the religious leaders coming out. Notice verse 7. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, this is one of those cutting abrasive words. Imagine you bring somebody to church this morning, first time you've ever been to New Covenant, and, and I'm like, brood of vipers. Like, you'd probably be like, dang, shouldn't have brought so-and-so. Um, and yet, and yet, this is, this is essential to John uncovering the self-righteousness in the hearts of those that think that they're good enough. Why are they even coming to John? Why come to a guy who's calling people to repentance and come to be baptized with a baptism of repentance if you don't really want to repent? Well, they're just like so many in the church. Why do so many people, well, I guess I got to go to church. Well, we got to get baptized. Well, got to get our kid baptized. Well, my dad was a deacon. Well, same deal. He says, don't say we have Abraham as our father. They're coming ritualistically. They're coming, they're just going through the motions. Well, let's go down. Let's get this thing over with. Probably let's convince the people that we actually care so they'll keep following us. And John knows the motives of their hearts. And so, very interesting, he uses the language of Genesis 3.15. Remember, God said to the woman that her seed would crush the seed of the serpent, the offspring of vipers. Here, the religious leaders of Israel are under the sway of the evil one. They are no longer ministering for the God who had built his church in the Old Testament. And yet they're coming out, and then, as I've noted, all of the irreligious are coming out. Now, there is a sweet word here for us. Um, There's hope for the worst of sinners. That's the word. It doesn't matter who it is. Now, um, Tim Keller has this really great way of putting this. And, And I was, this is one of those things, he has these great sayings sometimes that I just can think about like 50 ways over. Um, He said, the real problem is not what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. The real problem is not what you're doing right now. That may be a problem. The real problem is why you're doing it. So Luther, in his exposition on the Ten Commandments, 
in his exposition of the first commandment, he actually says that, you know, to put any other God before God, which is what we do anytime we make anything, even something good, ultimate. So if we're making our jobs ultimate or our spouse ultimate or ambitions ultimate or friends ultimate or uh, experiences or money, certainly money, any of those things that are in and of themselves not bad things, if we're making those ultimate things, then we are worshiping idols and we are putting other gods before the true and living God. And then Luther goes on to say that we are breaking every other commandment if we break that first commandment. And so then the point is, Anything else you do, adultery, uh, extortion, uh, lying, greed, covetousness, whatever, whatever it is, that all of those things are indicative that there's something wrong with our hearts. So that it's not, first and foremost, necessarily what we're doing wrong that's the problem, but why we're doing it. And, and so notice as these people come out that John begins to unpack that issue. And he does it now in the fourth place by talking about evidences of repentance. Now, we've talked about the necessity of a ministry of repentance. We've talked about what repentance is. We've talked about who God calls to repentance, everybody, right? The religious, the irreligious, sinners, and those that think they're righteous. And then how do I know that I've repented? Because that's, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, if you leave this place, you hated half of what I said, but you hear this, praise God. How do you know whether you've ever repented? Well, John tells us there will be evidences and fruits. Notice that um, as those people come to him who are sincere in verse 10, and they begin to say, what, what do we need to do? Um, John begins to give them these marks of repentance. And he says, look, you know, this was a greedy generation. By the way, this is a word for us. Imagine... If a pastor got up and said to you this morning, you know, you're all hypocrites, you all live in your nice houses, drive your nice cars, but you don't care about the poor, you would probably run me out of town. That's, that's exactly what John tells Israel. Like, he who has two tunics, let him give to who has none. So, your stinginess, your greed is a mark that you're unrepentant. Notice the second group that comes. That's to everyone, by the way, in verse 11. Then notice now the tax collectors come. And, and very interesting, all of the threads of the evidences of repentance in this passage have to do with money, all of them. Every evidence of repentance has to do with what we do with money. I, I was super convicted this week. Super convicted. Putting myself here, how do I respond if I hear John say, if you have two of this, then give to those that have none. Notice this, tax collectors came and said, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Don't be greedy and laying up and buying new cars and houses and everything you want, right? He says, don't, don't be taking more to yourselves. And then notice that the soldiers come and they say, what shall we do? And he says, don't extort money from anybody by threats. I'm sure our military men here are not doing that. I hope. <laughs> and by false accusation, be content with your wages. So all about money. Isn't that interesting? Luke will have that theme throughout how you can't serve God in money. If money's your God, Jesus isn't. If money's your God, there's no repentance. Um, fruit of repentance is that we will be generous people. 
We will not be hoarding for ourselves. We will be thinking about those in need, first in the body and then without. Um, We will not just be looking up to lay up treasures here. Now, I think, though, there is another aspect to this, and Phil Riken really captures this well, and I want you to listen carefully to this, because whatever stage of life you're in, and, and you all have different professions, different occupations, um, some of you are bankers, some of you are uh, in politics, some of you are military, some of you are domestic, uh, amazing housewives, um, in ministry, whatever it is, uh, Riken says, these examples teach us that every situation of life has its own typical temptations, its own dominating forms of depravity. Office workers are tempted to grumble. Laborers are tempted to cut corners. Businessmen are tempted to be greedy. Scholars and musicians are tempted to be arrogant. Teachers are tempted to be impatient. So are parents. Children are tempted to rebel against their parents. Men are tempted to use pornography and angrily abuse their authority. Women are tempted to gossip and use their words to manipulate. People who have been wronged are tempted to become bitter. People who suffer are tempted to self-pity. And even these are only examples. The point is that God calls every one of us to repent of our own personal sins. And that means we got to take an inventory check of our lives. And we have to say, up against God's word and what God has clearly revealed in the scripture, where in my life are there areas where I am rough and crooked, where I have not been leveled, where um, repentance has not been evidenced. The, um, the Puritans used to say that uh, we are not only to repent of sins generally, but that we are to repent of particular sins particularly. So we are not just to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I know, so is everybody. But I got to look at my life against the word And I have to say, where is God calling me to repent? Where am I bitter? Where am I angry? Where do I gossip? Where do I slander? Where am I greedy? Where am I proud? Where am I lustful? Where am I given over to idolatry? Helpful categories, by the way. You can reduce everything down to power, pleasure, provision. Where am I making idols with power? Where am I making idols with pleasure? Where am I making idols with provisions? Where am I taking those things that may be good things, putting them in the driver's seat, not trusting the Lord, not benefiting others, not being a blessing to others? Now, let me say this. In none of this are you being called to trust in your own works. John the Baptist did not say, do enough good works so that you can be saved. He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that means that John will go on, and in his ministry, he will continually point to the Savior, and he will point at Jesus, and he will say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where does my sin go when I repent of it? Well, it already went to the Savior. It was put on Jesus at the cross. All of my unrighteousness was imputed to him, all of it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so the way to deepen repentance, if you're here today and you're thinking, yes, I want to deepen repentance, the way to deepen repentance 
is to consider afresh what Jesus has done on the cross, to realize that God has taken the punishment on himself, that the real baptism you need is the bloody baptism of his death, by which he washes away your sins with his blood. That's, that's where the repentance is fueled. That's the, the nucleus of evangelical repentance. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would grant us grace, that we might grow deeply in humility and brokenness, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would uncover our sin, that you would show us what you've done to deal with our sin in your Son on the cross. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us power unto repentance by a clear sight of the mercy and the grace that is ours through your death and resurrection. We pray that you would give us brokenness as we consider what you've done for us. We pray that you'd prepare us now as we come to the table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.